Do you know one of the signs of true mastery, like true artistry? It's restraint. Jeremy could do that every week if he wanted to, but he picks his spots and lets other people do all the special music, and he's got this all in his hip pocket the whole time. He loves being praised publicly, I know. It's a long way of saying, thank you, sir. Appreciate you. Yeah, yeah. Well, friends, my name is Adam. If, if we haven't met, and I want to greet you and, and tell you thank you for keeping this appointment with God. I want to also greet our friends who are online and everybody who will experience this message either through our podcast or on our website later on this week. I've got a bit of a confession to start off today, and that's that I don't like being told what to do. Anyone else feel that way? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Okay, you did a couple raise their hands. I didn't want to ask you because that would be me telling you what to do, right? <laughs> growing, growing up a pastor's kid, I kind of developed this instinct to, to zig when people thought I would zag. And that's because growing up, everyone assumed because of their experience with pastor kids or the reputation or whatever, that I would be like this rebellious heathen terror. And so for me, it was like, you know what, man? I'm not going to fit into your mold and do what you think I'm going to do. So in a weird way, my spite propelled me towards more Puritan behaviors, I guess. Now, let me see if you're on my level or not when it comes to not wanting people to tell you what to do. Have you ever not watched a show because so many people have told you that you should watch it? I still have not season, seen a full season of Ted Lasso just because like 80 people have told me I would love it. Well, you know what? I'm not going to watch it. I refuse. I'm not saying this is good. I'm just saying this is me. Or has anyone else noticed when you get groceries, there's like this subtle change to the question the bagger will ask you. They'll say, is plastic okay? And it's like, hey, why are you trying to confine my bag options? Don't subliminally try and change my decision. I want paper. Now, if you asked or if you said no to either one of these questions, you are probably a well-adjusted person in society. So good for you. Me, I don't like being told what to do. And I think that's part of our cultural inheritance as Americans. We're pioneers. We blazed the trail. During the Revolutionary War, we flew the don't tread on me flag. You know, the yellow one with the coiled snake? I saw two of those on the way to church this morning. So be on the, on the lookout on your way home. As Americans, but really as human beings, obedience is not our favorite. Summed up simply by a lyric from Rage Against the Machine, I can't tell you how the lyric starts, but it ends with, I won't do what you tell me. And I think there's a sinful streak in us that feels that way. And from the opening pages of scripture, we can see that we can trace so many of our problems and difficulties back to a lack of obedience. So what I hope we'll discover today as we study God's word together is that obedience is choosing God's long-term best over your short-term fears. As we prepare for Christmas during the season of Advent, we're in a series called Choose Your Own Adventure, and it's inspired by the series of books, Choose Your Own Adventure. So I'm hitting you with the Rage Against the Machine lyric from the 90s. I'm hitting you with the Choose Your Own Adventure books. This is like a nostalgia tour for me. And so in this series, we're looking at the encounters that people had with angels leading up to the birth of Jesus, and we're looking at the choices they had to make. 
we also wanna give you a chance to make choices as a part of this series. And so just like the books, you're gonna to get to determine how the message ends today. So I'd love for you to get out your phones and you're gonna text the phrase 11 choose. Now, if you were here last week, you realize it didn't work. That's because I did the free trial to try and save money, which I thought you all would appreciate. And we ran out of, like, we ran out of juice. So I forked over a little bit of cash and now we should be good. So if you tried last week and it didn't work, try again, because if no one does this, I'm not gonna know how to uh, in the in the sermon here. So you're gonna have uh, three choices here. Text the word 11, choose to 816-640-4990. And the different choices on how we can end the sermon are as follows. One, if you wanna hear about Dallas Jenkins, who is the creator of the series, The Chosen, uh, and his journey in obedience in terms of his art in, in directing. Now I will say, if you want a sermon experience unlike any of the other three services today, that one is, is one we haven't done yet. So I'll just throw that out there for you. Now you guys hear plenty about me. So do you wanna hear another story about Adam? That's choice number two. Or choice number three is a young woman who's part of our church. She just came last service actually. Her name is Rachel. And a story about how she has made her faith a priority in the face of fear. And so I'd love for you to, to make that selection sometime between now and the end of the service. Let's leave that graphic up for a little while. And you're going to choose how the sermon ends. So please don't feel bad about getting at your phone during the message. I'm used to it. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, but really. Um, and, and please help us out and do that. It'll be fun. In Luke 1, we read an incredibly unique episode about courage and obedience. We're going to meet Mary, the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and we're going to read about the promise that she received from an angel about Jesus' birth. Mary was a young woman, almost certainly in her teens. She, went, she was engaged to a, another young person named Joseph. And in the first century, engagements, what we would refer to as engagements or betrothals, uh, were legally binding, just like a marriage was, but they could last a year or even longer. And we're also told that Mary's husband-to-be is from David's line, David being Israel's greatest king. And we're also told that this visit, visit from the angel takes place while Mary is in Nazareth. Nazareth. One of the parts I love about being from a small town in Missouri is when people ask you where you're from and you go ahead and tell them the name of the place and then tell them what it's by because they won't have heard of it, right? So like me, I was born in Memphis, but not the one you've heard of. Not Memphis, Tennessee, Memphis, Missouri. That's kind of a similar effect with Nazareth, right? It was a backwater town in Israel. Uh, in the scriptures, one person comments, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So that was the type of reputation it had, and that was where Mary was from. And that was where she was when the angel speaks to her. And we'll pick up in Luke 1, starting with verse 28. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. I don't know if you've ever received news that would change your life. This would certainly be that for Mary. And it would also be news that would change all of history. And it feels like a compliment to be highly favored by God. But as we'll see, that comes with some high expectations. So it feels like a feather in your cap, but it also means this is going to be interesting. Verses 29 through 30. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. 
Now, as with most angel appearances, one of the first things out of their mouths is, don't be afraid. And why is that? People were afraid all the time. This would have been disturbing, shocking, jarring. And so there are moments in life you can never prepare for. And the news the angel gives Mary is certainly unprecedented. Unprecedented before or since. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So the angel connects what's happening with Mary now to what God has done and promised in the past. More on that in a second. Mary's being informed of all this, and her response indicates the type of mindset that I imagine helped her find favor in God's eyes. This is what Mary said. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? Now last week we looked at an angel announcing another unlikely birth in this same chapter of Luke 1. That episode was with Zechariah, so the angel appeared to dad, and dad received the news. And Zechariah's response was, how can I be sure of this? So Mary said, how will this be? Zechariah said, how can I be sure of this? Mary's reply has a nuance to it. Poet Kathleen Norris said this, Mary's how can this be is a simpler response than Zechariah's and also more profound. She does not lose her voice like Zechariah did, but she does not lose her voice, she finds it. Mary proceeds as we must do in life, making her commitment without knowing much about what it will entail or where it will lead. Mary's response is summed up in a word, I think, obedience. And so the angel gives Mary their parting words, verses 35 through 37. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word from God will ever fail. So Mary, being a young woman of Jewish descent, would have certainly been familiar with the prophecies of a coming Messiah, a savior for the people of Israel. And so the angel is telling Mary that all these things that have been foretold a long time ago, they're now gonna be fulfilled through her. And I wanna give a shout out to my good friend, Allison, who was also preaching on this scripture this week and had already made a chart, which I ripped off. And you know I love my charts. So this is uh, a kind of a rundown here of all the embedded language that, uh, in, that the angel uses and the links between what has come before in the Old Testament and what the angel is promising Mary. And they line up that he will be great, this child that Mary's going to have, that he will be called the son of the most high, the throne of his ancestor David. That's what this child will inherit. David, Israel's greatest king that this child will reign over the house of Jacob forever. That's a way of saying all of Israel's descendants, that this uh, child's kingdom will have no end, that the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And Microsoft Word wanted me to hyphenate Most High, but I refused because I don't like to be told what to do. <laughs> he will be called Son of God and that nothing will be impossible with God. No word of God will ever fail. So the angel's declaring that Mary is gonna play no small part in God's fulfilling of all of these promises. And this will happen through supernatural means. Now I'm gonna spare you any speculations I have on what it's like to be pregnant. No one needs to hear that. 
And I'm not even sure we can begin to conceive of what Mary was going through, like what was going on in her mind. Based on the text, though, I will say I find her response to all of the angels' words to her, I find Mary's response almost astonish, as astonishing as the concept of the virgin birth itself. This is almost equally hard to believe because it's so incredible. Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. That's how she answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. I am the Lord's servant. Mary responds humbly and obediently, despite a lack of information, despite the uncountable great physical collateral that she will give in this equation, and despite several excellent reasons to be fearful. That's how Mary responded still, in obedience. In Mary's society in the first century, if an engaged young woman was found to be pregnant out of wedlock, the spectrum of outcomes is grim or grimmer. At best, what Mary's looking at is public shame, divorce, and potentially irreparable economic ruin. That's the best case scenario. At worst, she's looking at being stoned to death. And despite all of those reasons to fear, she chose obedience. As a servant, she accepts that the one that she serves knows best. She's choosing God's long-term best over her short-term fear. And so when faced with the choice to be obedient to God or to choose self-preserving fear, which do we tend to choose? Do we orient ourselves to God as a servant? Or do we claim the motto, even when it comes to God, don't tread on me? Maybe that's a good litmus test, whether you consider yourself or whether you are more Christian or more American. And, and this trend, this instinct we have toward kind of fear-based independence it goes way back further than the American Revolution. It goes all the way back to the beginning. This is not an American problem. This is a human problem. Genesis 2 tells us that people's first act of disobedience to God was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is a very famous phrase. It's a very strange phrase. The knowledge of good and evil. This phrase occurs two other times in the Old Testament. And in the same sense, it consistently means to formulate and articulate a judicial decision. In other words, eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil means that people looked to themselves instead of God for what is best. So many decisions that we make every day are short-term and they're based on fear for what we think will preserve us or protect us. All of our fears, almost all of them I can think of, come down to this. Fear of failing, fear of how we'll be perceived, fear of not having enough, fear of being abandoned, fear of the unknown, or just plain old fear something's going to be hard. Too many times we shortchange 
God's best because of our short-term fears. And I'm speaking out of experience. We are too afraid to trust God for the long-term best, which will require obedience. Yes, even in the face of fear. And, and when it comes to obedience, what, what are we being obedient to? I'm not sure I've defined that very well. So what, what are we called to be obedient to? I think there's a verse in, in the letter of 2 John that sums it up beautifully. This is a pastor writing to their, their community of faith. Puts it so simply. I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Obedience to God is loving God and loving neighbor. It's not complicated. It's not complicated. That doesn't mean it's easy. But it's not that complicated. And so, which adventure did we choose? Let's, let's check the stats here. What are we working with? Okay. It was close-ish. You want to hear about one of the fears that I have. Okay, here we go. I'll give you a picture of my family here to kind of get this in your mind. Because my greatest desire and my greatest fear are intertwined. And some of you heard me say this before. My greatest desire is that my children would love God and love the church. And my greatest fear is that they might not because of my job. See, growing up a pastor's kid, we moved around a bunch. Uh, and, and so despite feeling a call to ministry, probably around age 14, I tried to put that off as long as I could. Now, I tried to do the minimum, and I still worked at a church for about a decade, but I was still reserving control over where my family lived and where I worked. Because in the Methodist church, if you don't know, uh, we're assigned, or our, our fancy term for that is pastors are appointed. And so don't be, don't be alarmed. The church and the pastor both have a lot of input in that. But the bottom line is, I grew up having probably four or five conversations with my parents about us moving, and I just didn't want to do that to my kids. Simple as that. Remember, I don't like being told what to do. So that's a common thread here, friends. I didn't want someone else telling me where my family would live and where I would work. Now, when Sarah and I were getting engaged, both she and her family knew that this could be a potential possibility, but I fought it as long as I could. You can see how well that's turned out. Spoiler alert, right? But before we had kids, I just had this vision in my mind that I don't, I don't want them, I don't want to do to them what I had to go through. Uh, but over time, here's what I learned. That you cannot say to Jesus, I'll take everything you got from me, but I'm going to reserve this little part of me from you. It doesn't work. And I think over time, I grew to understand humbly that Jesus loves my wife and my kids more than even I do. So what business do I have saying, Jesus, take everything except 
for this part, which I'm going to try and have this flimsy shroud of protection over. It just didn't work. Couldn't do it. And so rather than just dipping my toe in and working at a church, when I was 27, I began the process of being ordained into ministry in the church. And here's why I tell you all of this. Friends, I'm, I'm here to say, since Sarah and I made that decision years ago, our lives have gotten only better and in ways that we never would have imagined. That's the thing, man. You think holding on to the control and, and like letting your fear drive what you're going to say yes or no to, you think you're trying to do it better. But it's in the releasing of all that and in the obedience that God can do things that you never would have picked yourself in the first place. And, and part, of what's, part of what's been great has been being with you all. When I was 23 years old, I, I'm not sure if I would have ever believed you if you told me I'd move to a town with two Casey's. <laughs> Incredible. We joked about this in the other service. That's what's behind door number one. Pizza. <laughs> I'm here to tell y'all, for about 14 years, I said, nope, no one's going to tell me what to do. And God, I'll give you this, but only so far. And since we made that decision to surrender that little piece we were holding on to, I don't know what the equivalent is for you, but I'm here to tell you, our life has been so much blessed by God with open hands than when we tried to clinch it and control it all ourselves. That's what obedience gives you. That's the blessing. To say that Mary was in a unique situation having been visited by this angel and the, the promise of the virgin birth, to say she was in a unique situation would be a cosmic understatement. I think that's part of the challenge of reading things like Luke 1. What is God saying to us? Because the, the, the birth of Jesus stands unique in history. So to me, the question is not, well, what would you have done if you were Mary? And it's a great song, but the question is not, Mary, did you know? The question is, like Mary, can you take the role of a servant in relation to God? That's what it comes down to. Can you trust, like Mary did, as a servant, that the one you serve knows best? That, to me, is what this comes down to. Obedience is choosing God's long-term best over your short-term fear. I'm not saying that we don't have several excellent reasons to be fearful. I imagine you do. I'm not saying it's easy. It ain't. But how could you love God and neighbor more through obedience this week? And what is it that's stopping you? What fear is at the bottom of our disobedience? What are you afraid of? A servant knows the one they serve knows best. And so which will you choose, door number one 
or door number two, obedience or fear? The choice is yours. And everybody said, amen. amen.